listeners, welcome back to Hussman FC. I'm Nikola Volpi and I'm joined by he's trotting towards his goal, but the home fans start throwing dollar bills at him. It's Roy Sightly. I'm back. I'm back in the in the hometown club. Exactly. Back to get a bicycle kick scored in between your legs right before then another strapping young fella with a wonderful beard, wonderful haircut scores the two to one. How do you feel? Olivier. Olivier. And can you please finally apologize? No, I will not. I I will not apologize. He cost us a title at Arsenal. <laughs> you say the same thing every time. It's the third time at least. You would, say, you would say the exact same thing if he cost you the title at Milan. How did a striker cost you the title? He went 15 games without <laughs> scoring a single goal. And he played 90 minutes in every single one of those games. He was missing everything. Penalties. Easy attempts. I, I wish there was a stat for the that run of missed XG goals. It was phenomenal. The only thing that kept us in in contention of the league was the fact that Santi Gazorla, Ramsey, they were all playing out of their minds while this guy could not score anything. Conversely, Giroud shows up to the World Cup in 2018, doesn't score a single goal, and they win the World Cup. Yeah, but he, he plays in a great system right there. That's true. What did he have around him? What I've gone on the record, I don't remember now. I referred to Santi Casorla as a poor man's somebody, but I don't remember was, who I, that was. I don't remember what it was, but I remember it was disrespectful to the craft. You were quite insulted by that. I mean, yeah, he's a chubby guy, but you're <laughs> you're putting that you're well, so was Maradona. That. Is Santi still playing this season? I think so. At I think he's, no, no, no. He's in uh Qatar, maybe? Ah, uh, he did one of these uh, cheeky little moves over the summer, huh? Actually, that's not true. Didn't he this season come back to, not Villarreal, but a second division team, like his hometown, his boyhood club? Well, I thought I read something about it like that. Well, great podcasting content. We're clearly prepared great, on the San Picasola narrative. Great content. Um, and he had a welcome video. I thought it was amazing. I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. And they recreated... The opening Epic. scene yeah. of the uh, the first movie where Gandalf is coming into the Shire with Frodo. And I think they make Santa Gazorla Gandalf and Frodo <laughs> in the same in the same video. So um, clearly he's a big Lord of the Rings fan as well. A Colts hero at Arsenal, would you say? I'd say so. And yeah. it would be even more so if he was there for maybe... One or two more see. I mean, he was, but he had that really horrific injury. But the years he were he was playing for Arsenal were fantastic. I mean, there's a few games where untouchable on the field. I'll give you who's more cult, Santi Casorla or Thomas Wasiski? Casorla. <laughs> Wasiski was not appreciated within the Arsenal fan base. What? Who played on a worse Arsenal team? Wasiski. Well, I guess he was there forever. He, yeah, he was there for a long time, so he was part of some of those, some of those teams. At least in theory, on the squad level. I mean, I I watched what every single Arsenal game since two thousand nine ten. I only remember watching Rzyski a few times. That tells you all you need to know about his availability. Kind of like you. Yeah, yeah, we had the same party habits. <laughs> 
was he a partier? Was that the word on him? Yeah, yeah, that was the oh. that was his allegedly his first injury. Somebody can fact check me on this, but he uh, he was in rehab for a while, allegedly, oh, with wow. one of his ankle injuries. Because he at the time was supposed to be the guy that Pavel Nedved was passing the mantle to uh, for for the Czech Republic team. He was considered to be one of the the best number tens in uh, in Europe. Yeah, he also had one ankle after uh, mm, that, that injury. Help. So I think he was out for two years with that ankle ligament injury, which kind of prolonged at the end his his career. So he was still at Arsenal, I think, when he was 35, 36. And he looked, he could, you know, had the agility, somebody who was in their prime. Well, Thomas Lasiski, ladies and gentlemen, Roy, Coming off of another week of Champions League, there's only two rounds left in this group stage. What are your takes? What are your thoughts? I think Arsenal is going to make it out. I'm very still on the Arsenal train. Yeah. Gabriel Martinelli gave that right back Sevilla nightmares. They counted him out. I don't know if you've seen the the highlights of that game, but he beat the guy one-on-one eight times in a single match. That was tied for the highest in Champions League history of, of take-ons one-on-one. Um, I think his evolution these three years since he's been at Arsenal has been incredible. He was playing lower division ball in, in Brazil, came over as like a kid. Fourth, fifth division. Something like Brazil. that, right? Yeah, yeah I think we talked about it where they paid $5 million for Martinelli and it was able to kind of restart that his his club in brazil their whole like you know his training facilities everything five million dollars took it so far and they're kind of have a second life at the club there so props whoever found him because he has that mindset that takes you all the way very agile i could also see him transforming three to four years from now just into an outright number nine because he has that goal-getting instinct as well it's true, but he does like to stay wide. He's playing yeah. up top a few times, but he does drift out wide on his runs. So I think he likes to to cut in. Um, Salah-esque. Yeah. Just unfortunate where he's up with probably the best left wing in the world on the Brazilian national team. Well, yes, yeah, so Vinny. Vinny Jr. That's a tough one. I mean, but that's how it's going to be, right, with, with Brazil. Like... If he wanted to, he could have played for England. It could have been fine. What other roundups we have from Champions League? Look, I Milan well, scored well, well, their we, first we two to, goals. Yeah, I was gonna say we have this yeah. is a big week for for your team. Two, not one, but two goals. Two goals, thank you. Uh against PSG, who I had been at the first match in Paris, I had been super impressed by PSG, by that attacking front line with Mbappé, Dembele, and uh, and our man there. Um, what's his name? Kulumani. Kulumani, exactly. I love Zaida Emery in the middle. And this time, for the first time all season, Pioli decides to show up with a game plan. They press correctly, they match up correctly, and they play through Leao when they need to. Tiani Reinders in the middle, remember the name. It's I a thought you were going to talk about Loftus Cheek, who had a phenomenal game. I'm getting to Loftus. Loftus, man of the match, and we have I, missed him. 
I agree. And he'll be he'll be on fire for the next three games before he goes out with an unju- another injury. And that's what I'm starting to come around is Milan's bad stretch the last month. Loftus was injured. Now he's back. He's, I don't know, he adds this really cool dynamic to the midfield because he can run with the ball, but he's also super physical. Uh, and he has the vision. I didn't know he had that type of playmaking vision because oh, he, yeah. didn't, he didn't play that much at Chelsea, right? The issue um, is not... It's always like his availability. Yeah, it's with so many players that we talk about, and like you, you were you even said like I didn't. He didn't play that much at Chelsea. Like I didn't know. He, yeah, he was always injured. It's hard to break into a team like that. But also when he was at Crystal Palace, he was fantastic on on yeah. Palace, and he can do like what few players can do, which is what you said: break the press and be able to like relieve the pressure of being like uh you know he can start on his own 18 and and run with the ball 30 40 yards and no one can touch him because of that physicality that's a i don't even know if that's a skill or something you're born with because so few players can do it it's not something you really teach right somebody to run with the ball that far um takes a lot of confidence there and i'm big on loftus cheek if he can stay healthy it's refreshing to have that kind of extra gear in the midfield. I think potentially we have a very strong and solid midfield. As you said, risks are, you know, the injuries coming around. But it is having that with those sixes and eights takes a lot of pressure off of Leao and the side with Teo, where we've been overly dependent on the last year. I just hope now he can figure out how to throw in a Chukwese, for example, into the mix. Uh, and and uh, get him up and running because I don't know what's going on over there, but um, yeah, he'd rather play Nikola Jovic uh, as he did on the weekend starting, which is an absolute joke because the guy was a flop at Fiorentina. I don't know how he's going to make it with us. Um, and then on the other hand, I mean, Giroud, when he's there, he does the job. So yes, the argument would be you need another number nine. Uh, he's that age, but when he's there, he does the job. And to be honest with you, he hasn't gotten injured in the three years compared to a lot of the other guys. And I think probably that goes a lot to say also what is his discipline on the training ground, in the gym, etc. Um, he's in better shape now than when he came from Montpellier to Arsenal, I would say. And that's like 12 years ago. Yeah, yeah. He's doing something right. We need to get that that <laughs> regimen. We're, we're trending his direction. Uh, so we... Uh, yeah, exactly. exactly. We have to figure out what he's doing. We'll give Olivier um, a call. How was uh, Pulisic? I know he got hurt, and they said it's muscle fatigue, which I thought was... I thought he tore a hammy when he went off, uh, to be honest, what he was grabbing, but it looks like he's going to be fine. Um, I think in terms of the, the matchup, he he was a bit off. Um, we weren't playing much through him. Uh, it was yeah. a lot of uh, of uh, him underlapping, actually, to uh, to Ruben Sandwich and then, uh, and then Leao on the other side. Um, I... What, what I've come to see with Pulisic, and this is my sample, has been, you know, these whatever first between Champions League and, and Serie A, you know, maybe 15 matches with Milan, is he's very hot and cold. So he'll show up and be in a match. If he gets his touches in those first five minutes and creates something, he's very momentum dependent. And, and he'll go, you know, 70 minutes all out. He'll be one of the best players on the pitch, if not the best. When that's not the case, as it was, you know, on Tuesday against PSG, um, he becomes kind of a ghost, to be honest. And he's not 
the type of guy that, yes, he will track back. He's a hard worker, but he's not adding value when he doesn't have the ball, to be honest. He's not making the runs into space like a striker or something. So I think there's... I love to have him in the team. You know, I didn't have high expectations coming out of the summer, right? But he's quite hot and cold, which is okay in Serie A where the ball is effectively only in play for 30 minutes a match. But then you come against the PSG where it's constant pressure the whole time. And if you get caught, as we did a few times, all Mbappé needs is a centimeter. You also need that guy to, you know, be hot and come and help. Yeah, all fair points. All fair points, I think. What we all know about Pulisic, at least for those who follow him a little more on the national team and his yeah. short time in in the EPL, I think he does have the X factor quality. But if he's not involved, like you said, it's kind of more so a liability. But yeah. he does have the you know the talent to you know in a fifteen second stretch make some magic happen. So it's always the the dilemma: Do you keep this creative player on? when he's not doing anything for that one moment, or do you put somebody in after who's more industrial and can, you know, stick to a game plan. So I think it's interesting The the group's wide open. It's the most interesting group in, yeah. in the champions league. And I, I did, I'm not going to lie to you. I did not have high hopes for, for Milan to get something out of this game and still be in the shout of going to the next round. And I think yeah, they're, they're there. It was a must win. I mean, and going in, there was no indication that they would win. They lost to Udinese 1-0 on the weekend at home. Yeah, but also uh, you're playing so. PSG. They're terrible. Convince me otherwise. <laughs> I mean, that attack though, honestly, and that midfield coming in, let's see. And I think maybe they finally even have a manager that takes no nonsense with uh, Luis Enrique, uh, Luis Henrik. Um so let's see what comes of that. But other than that, flowers to Shakhtar Donetsk for upsetting oh. FC Barcelona 1-0 at neutral ground in Hamburg. That was fantastic. Their first win in since 2008 over, was it a Spanish team or yeah. over Barca? Over Barca. And let's not forget, though, I mean, Shakhtar Donetsk a few years ago was coming through that group stage of Champions League almost every year, right? When they had all the Brazilians and stuff, right? So Only one Brazilian now. Only one Brazilian now, which, you know, says a lot about their situation. They're playing miles, miles from home in Hamburg, in far north corner of Germany, uh, for obvious reasons, not playing uh, in, in the Ukraine, these Champions League matches. But uh, they seem to galvanize the, the crowds and actually... Italy to uh, go go through to, to the Euro basically as a playoff against Ukraine and Leverkusen, where everyone's going to be cheering for Ukraine, obviously. Um, so uh, I'm I'm curious to see uh, how that one plays out, and if uh, if Luciano Spalletti is a is a one and done, and by one and done, I don't mean one tournament and done. I mean one failed qualification and done. Could be, could be. Yeah, that'll be interesting and. I don't know how Italy keeps on getting themselves in this situation. That, well, uh, you said it. It's getting themselves into these situations. <laughs> Drawing yeah. against the Macedonians of the world, etc. Um, the final drubbing of the Champions League of Atletico Madrid, I think we should... This is a good point to, uh, to turn to our main conversation, but mm. Diego Simeone's men, six... Was it 6-0 or 6-1 against... Uh, 
Nil. Nil. Nil against Celtic. And that's on the heels of an extended contract. So he'll be going <laughs> to Atletico Madrid till 2027. So How many be... times have we had Diego uh, Simeone's funeral broadcast? How many I'm times? I'm sick of this man. <laughs> and he <Six> still... <laughs> Can Beckham documentary, the star of the show, was Cholo Simeone. <laughs> he was so unapologetic about what he did. Fantastic. Oh, he was just there. They were interviewing him. He was all smiles at the Wanda Metropolitano. And he's like, es el fútbol. <laughs> just fantastic. the energy. 16 years of Simeone. Gosh. Unbelievable. And final shout out from my side, because... When we did our Champions League preview earlier in the season, I said, no chance. They're in a horrible groove. FC Copenhagen, four. Manchester United, three. That yeah. was injected into my veins. <laughs> the um, Rashford red card. That's what I mean, was that injected was, into your veins. That was pretty, pretty bleak. But I just love when they cut to Ten Hag and he looks so... Like, he's always pondering, like, hmm, what's the next move? How how can I change this? They're just terrible. The team, and I mean, one thing I'm really getting tired of is this, was it the Neville, Phil Neville's, uh, or Gary Neville? Gary, yeah. Gary's, Phil's going to Portland now. Yeah, he's going back after a failed stint in Inter-Miami. He's going <laughs> to Portland. Yeah, Gary always, you know, he makes everything about Arsenal. And he's a pun. He's one of the main pundits in, you mm. know, whatever in the league. And he's all. He's a huge Manchester United fan, and everything yeah. has to be about bashing Arsenal. Which I that's fine if you're neutral. You don't like. It's kind of like annoying to have him always talking about Arteta, the team that we complain, yeah. and then like we need to shut up about VAR, and then that happens, and he goes on like a meltdown of VAR and how there's it's ruining the game. That was mm. never a red. And it's so the hypocrisy that comes out and it's like they can pick and choose what they can address and what they can't just to get clicks out of it. And it's just not fun for the league. Like, No, it's not. And most of these guys now, what they've seen is what people engage with in terms of exactly. you know, social it's, media content is is a fan as a pundit. But when you, when you appreciate the game, that's not what you want. I don't want Carragher talking about Liverpool. I certainly don't want Micah Richards talking about Man City because Micah Richards, I'm sorry, but does not have one relevant insight no. about how to play the game. No. Um, it's a com- like it's it, it is entertaining that yeah. CBS show they have, but it's not it's not like what I want to if you're like a true like fan of the match or fan of just football. It's not for the Hossman FC followers. That's no. for sure. I, although some of the the insights they like the other day they had Clint Dempsey do a freestyle mm-hmm. at halftime yeah. or after the game. No one, no one wants that. No Why? one wants it. But I do want to see Thierry Henry talk about PSG and Emery, for example, or what Mbappe can yeah. do to take his game to the next level. That's that's great. He's the but, one actually adding value in terms of the analysis of the game. Yeah. I mean, Jamie Carragher was a butcher. What is he going to know about how they play the game nowadays? But the, the thing, when we're talking punditry and we're talking specifically Manchester United, and before we go to our core segment, Manchester United, which has been a graveyard for great players the last 10 years, they need to stop. They need to stop covering them 
as serial winners. They have not won a league in 10 years since Fergie left, almost 11, 12 years, but they cover them every time they lose on the weekend, even if they're outplayed by Crystal Palace, even you know if Spurs is clearly better than them, they cover them as if they're expected to win every weekend 3-0. I'm sorry, but they're not. Tamper your expectations. They have absolutely murdered Harry Maguire. That's uh, been insane. That is yeah. like, I mean, I got on on Instagram and my feed was just that one Harry Maguire bad pass. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Where he, instead of just playing it on the ground to the right back, he like chips it, it goes out into the crowd. Oh man. And it was just kind of like, and they, the, the, the media, then they cut straight to the manager. Like, Oh, what could this guy be thinking? Right. Right. This guy's career is gone. You know, he was at the highs of the Euro to, the lowest of lows, you know, stripped of captaincy coming it's on. All, it's and- also a toxic environment. They currently have Jaden Sancho training with the kids and eating his lunchbox oh. in a room by himself because he won't apologize to Eric Ten Hag. For some I, comment. I, I, I pray it's true. The the thing that Ten Hag won't let him into the cafeteria. So into they, the cafeteria. Send, they send out a lunchbox with a, a meal that's, you know, <laughs> Somebody on the on the on the staff decides what he gets to eat, and they send him out there like he's a prison inmate. So he sits by oh. himself; he's not allowed into the facilities. There's and also that gets the, to the press. Like, exactly. what are There's they gaining the, from this? The Athletic, I think, was the one that posted that they, he's been like temporarily removed from the the team's WhatsApp, so he's not part of that either. It's like what. What's happening here? Like, but then, how petty is this? It, Eric Ten Hag, you want to be the next Fergie? You want to build an Ajax-like culture at Manchester United? That's not what you're doing. He's done. I, what do you think? He's gone before before winter? I think before they got to... Before the new year? I don't think they can make that call because they got to figure out the ownership situation at the moment. Um, I mean... And what's it going to change? We've had who I say we like in terms oh, of the I, new I love it. I, Van Hal, Mourinho, Olegunar, him. Like the problem is is maybe maybe isn't always the managers. Maybe it's also what squads are you building from the manager? Why are you going out every summer and just building based on oh this guy costs like, a lot? This is what I really, on FIFA. This is what I really just despise about. And again, it ties it everything up. The, pun- the the punditry around, the commentary around the team that, oh, he needs more time. He needs yada, yada, yada. Look what happened with, they start comparing it with other teams. They have spent an insane amount of money. How much did they spend on that striker they just brought? $75 million? Oh, Hoyland, yeah. Plus the Hoy- add-ons, it gets to 100 Plus the add-ons. Onana was how much? 40 Yeah, easily. After He's one terrible. season at Inter, Anthony, but, Anthony yeah. is oh, one of the worst. One the of the attitude. worst players. The attitude, and the, he thinks he's like the top dog, and a hundred million for him. Jaden Sancho was another 75, 80. It's it's incredible. And then, but then you see them yeah. on the pitch. You see them on the pitch, and you're like, I mean, look, you're an Arsenal fan. At the beginning of Arteta, it it wasn't all smooth sailing. But there was an idea of the football. You could tell they were trying to do something. You what the tell. hell are they trying to do? There's, I don't know. Their 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 team is not. And again, I say this knowing like full well, like oh, I love it. I eat it up. On one hand, but on the other hand, it's like 
like you're going in there, you're bringing in players that are 30, 31, like paying yeah. what, whatever they paid for Casemiro. And then you're trying to rebuild the spine of your team. He's leaving his prime. You've got to get somebody that's 22, 23, start to build out. They, they, they panic. They bring in somebody who we're going to talk about a lot. And in a few minutes, yeah. Amrabat, who I don't know what's going on there, but there's so much they need to fix and they don't know where to start. So they just throw money at a big name because that's what's going to, you know, stem the tide until, you know, a few games go and there's an issue there. No, exactly. I mean, look, let's, on, on that grim note, we're going to come with just much better vibes after this break. And we talk got to about a moment of joy a in moment everyone's of joy. life. A cult team, a vibe team, in many ways... A Roy Cycli team after the break. Listeners, welcome back. We are approaching the one year anniversary of the twenty twenty two World Cup. And originally, we're laying out our cult teams with Roy. And I said, you know what, Roy? Let's talk about the 2002 Brazil squad. And Roy's like, no, let's talk about the 2022 Morocco squad. And could there be more of a cult team, Roy? I I don't think there could be. It's unbelievable, that run they made. And now, Roy, just to kick things off, I know you're going to come at me, you know, with all the, the little numbers and the data and all your your expected goals and where these players are now in terms of pass percentage and how effective they are on their counters. But before that, you know, I'm a man of the narrative. I'm a man of the story. I'm a man of the emotion. What a beautiful story. And uh, I'm going to just read you. I actually, a year ago, uh, I was so inspired by Morocco that uh, oh. they wrote a little piece about them. Uh, and I'm going to read you an excerpt from the end of that. Because I think it kind of, uh, not to toot my own horn, but I think it kind of brings together the significance of that run they made. Uh, as right, the first, let's hear it. Yeah. For weeks, there had been a lot of discussion in the global mainstream media about the fact that 14 out of the 26 Moroccan players who made the trip to Qatar were born elsewhere, mostly in European countries. A lot of the debate during the lead-up to the tournament and throughout it focused on football nationalism, and the implication that many of these players were, quote, not even Moroccan, end quote. As I watched the Dutch-born Sofian Amrabat from Hausen and Hakim Ziyech from Daunton laying out their limbs for a spot in the final four and shedding actual tears at the final whistle, I began to think about what this meant for them. What about Walid Raugi? the mastermind coach behind the inspiring run who was born in a Parisian suburb. What did being Moroccan mean for Ashraf Hakimi, arguably the best right back in the world? He was born and raised in Madrid by Moroccan parents. He grew up with one foot in one culture and the other foot in another. How did he feel? What did he identify as? The ever-nationalistic political discussions that have dominated headlines in the West in recent years would push us to label Hakimi and his teammates. Far-right politicians the world over would insist that the penalty-saving machine Yassin Bono cannot be both Spanish and Moroccan. 
as spectators and more generally as humans, we like to oversimplify concepts which are complex in their very nature. We prefer one-worded answers. The more binary, the better. What the Moroccan players showed us is that nationality does not have to be a clear-cut, black and white, true or false game. It can be a very nuanced, multiple choice question to which one may answer all of the above. And that is okay. It does not have to be our primary identifier. The Atlas Lions showed us that we can come from many places and that being a citizen of the world is no longer an idealistic cliche thrown out gratuitously at UN General Assemblies. Morocco making the final four of a World Cup is not just a heartwarming sporting achievement. It may very well also prove itself a watershed moment in a globalized 21st century with more and more people of mixed nationalities. Thank you for this, Atlas Lions. I hope that one day my own children will thank you too. Well, that was riveting. That was beautiful, Nick. That's the emotions that this team made me feel. I mean, I know you you had already wrote that, but just hearing you say that was fantastic. And it was just sparking some of the memories of that run, watching it. And when I was in, in Chicago and specifically the when they when they I can't remember which game it was, but just the celebrations of the team with their parents, their families on the field. The moms who fall dancing with his mom and just so much joy that a lot of teams that you watch in the World Cup, everything's so it's so standard now that there's no they don't bring that kind of joy and just passion to the game. Mm-hmm. You know, you have some teams they go in there like the Belgium team. There was nothing that World Cup. It was just we're here to play. There was a lot of, you know, upset how many games they're playing. You know, a lot of teams just complaining, but that Morocco team was just vibes from day one. And it wasn't even like a us against the world kind of thing. It was just look what we can do mm-hmm. mentality, which I also thought was very refreshing. Going for it from from that first game, uh, which was a bit of a bore. I think I had it on in the background during during the workday because the, the times of those matches in Qatar uh, were sometimes, you know, around lunchtime or whatever. And it was 0-0 against Croatia. But we knew Croatia, Roy, and we knew they're basically ultra marathoners from, from previous tournaments. And they already started thinking, hmm, Morocco, 0-0 against Croatia. That's interesting. Yeah, that's that's a tough first game to, to open up to. You know, I know everyone on the Croatian team's older, but they have that pedigree, that experience. And Morocco, I didn't have them leaving out of my group um and that group stage so and there was no reason to believe in morocco they had never been to more than two straight world cups at any point in their history they're perennial underachievers even in the african cup of nations yeah and for for the average fan you know who's their big name player ziyech who was out of the national team if you remember yeah because of a disagreement or actually let's be honest the coaches you know, public, the, the then coach before yeah. uh, Willie came in was the way he assessed Ziyech and just basically tore him apart as a person, as a player mm-hmm. um, to the press. And Ziyech said, you know, I'm done with the national team. I don't, I'm not playing for them anymore. Um, that was their star. And yeah. you could say on the other hand, like Hakimi coming up a little bit, but your star 
to take you all the way is not going to be a right back. So, yeah. And so, I mean, Ziyech basically misses at least that whole latter part of qualifying, right? Shows up, essentially. He's just brought back into the squad for the tournament. And at the time, if you remember, he was not getting his touches at Chelsea, let alone minutes there. So it's not like, yeah, you would say Hakim Ziyech, generational talent from Morocco, sure. But you would also say, hmm, Hakim Ziyech, he's not really been on his game. Yeah, squad rotational player right. for Chelsea. Already since, you know, three years since he left Ajax at that point, right? Yeah, and a lot of, and this is another thing I kind of loved about it. Like, I consider myself to know obscure soccer players here and there. I did not know many people on the Moroccan team. No. And I don't think a lot of people knew about the Moroccan team, which in today's day and age was so refreshing to to see and I think that that played to their hand a little bit in terms of the competition they were playing. So that was Croatia was their first game nil nil. What was the second match? The second match they play Belgium, and this is where it kicks off. This is where it all starts. Two nil, right? Two nil. First goal in the seventy third minute. Second one in the ninety second. And you're like, on the one, a lot of the discourse after this one was still like, huh. Those Belgians don't really want to be here, do they? Right? A lot of it was around that. But you could already tell, okay, these guys, first for starters, now Morocco hasn't conceded a goal in two matches. They're preparing these matches, and they're scoring on perfectly executed training ground counters like what we were supposed to learn in school. Yeah. Yeah, and I think another aspect of this game, there's a big contingent of Moroccan just... Yeah, diaspora in Belgium. Yeah, in Belgium. Yeah, um, none, none, none larger than Marwan Fellaini, right? <laughs> Absolutely, literally larger. Yeah. Um, um, so that was it. I remember that being a huge, a huge point, and seeing some of those scenes that were in Belgium, mm-hmm. the Moroccan pride that was, you know, and I think that's where you're you're touching on this. You know, they they're not in Morocco, but they still feel that that right. sense to their to their country there, and was really starting there. And another aspect of this, like you said, training out, training ground counterattacks. Um, I'm sure you played growing up, you know, you have to get from 118 to the next mm-hmm. in 15 seconds. Right. And you do that as like a train, you have a pattern of play that you, you continue to work on and it's like drilled into you. I don't know for a team that, you know, the coach is aware enough that they don't, might not have the the flair and the, you know, the, the connections that some other teams, like say, for example, Spain has a lot of Barca players, mm-hmm. Real Madrid players that mesh together. They, they play on a club level. These, these teams, they play, you know, a few times a year with each other. At most, yeah. Setting plays on how to best get like a goal. Yeah. That that was probably all their training camp was like. All right, we're gonna condition and we're gonna run. We're gonna set you know set pieces, counterattacking, and the way they set up. I don't know if we touched on it, but it was very counterattacking in terms of you know uh, they played with a lone striker. So mm-hmm. I guess you could say it was a four three three. But in the later stages, which we'll talk about, that went sometimes to a five four one, which was my favorite second favorite game of the World Cup. We'll get to it in a little bit, but the tactical masterclass of 
you know, both France and Morocco there. And that final game was phenomenal. But okay, so that was Belgium. Second and, game, third game. And I game. think there on, on the tactics, it's almost, and we'll get to it when we get to that France-Morocco, but it's almost like they're setting up like a basketball team trying to break the full court press. Like it's that level of, of detailed uh, playmaking. And it's very, it's intellectually honest football. They're not going to come out and try to have the ball at their feet because they know that's not their game. And we yeah. don't get enough of that in, in, in modern football. I think it's a very, you know, national team tournament type of vibe, not a league thing, right? Yeah. How, how are you approaching the game, essentially? Exactly. Um, and, and, and we need to also, having those examples of Morocco helps us get away from this, you know, fallacy of, well, if you don't dominate possession in a game, you didn't play well, right? Yeah. We need to be able to set those things apart. And I mean, you know my thoughts on on possession being the most overrated, misunderstood stat in football. So, yeah. but we can save that for a deep dive on that. Um, they show up to the third game in the group. It's no rubber match because there's still a chance for a lot of teams to go through. Uh, and they end up beating uh, the Canadians two to one. With, two to one. With Ziyech and... Our guy, the number nine up front, very old school number nine, and Nezri from Sevilla doing the job on the two. Does he have the best jumps in world football? The best hops? I mean, we'll get to it at that quarterfinal. I, that was Air Jordan. Like, un, un, unreal. Like, talk about a new skill set for a footballer. <laughs> like, But, like, legitimately, he can jump. So, watching... You know, the last, I think, not this week's Champions League, but this guy can, as a target man, I don't think he's that tall. He might be six foot at best, Mm. but he can jump so high. And that is probably like the most specific skill set you can have for this type of team where you have Ziyech, who is great. He's a great crosser. Like he hits the ball long pass very well. He can hit you on the counter. And the other side, you have Buffal, who... um, He's kind of a wild card, as you said, to to an extent with, like you mentioned in the earlier segment, Kristen Pulisic, who mm-hmm. all has that quality to change the game as well, albeit on a maybe not a higher scale as Pulisic can. But there is that one goal, if you remember, he scored at Southampton where he dribbled the whole field. Yeah, that was him. And scored. That was him. Yeah. And everyone's like, wow, this guy's going to take off. He's 23. And then after, he he just never could turn it on and off at will but that's who you're bringing into the team to hit you on the counter and with some great crosses to the air jordan over there yeah it's number nine it's unreal and then so at that stage it's morocco on to the knockout phase of a world cup onto the round of 16 Spain. Uh, spain and uh we've discussed the spain team a little bit the spain team of these last couple of years you know being very different from the old uh, duopoly of Madrid and Barcelona players, etc. But also, in a way, a lot of exciting young players. Luis Enrique bringing a bit of like a club style um, of football to it. But they disappoint in this tournament very much like they ended up doing in the Euro two years before. And this is where you go back to possession does not mm-hmm. always equal success. Um, it- I don't know if we have the possession stats of that game there. But that ended up going to penalties. Yeah. And here's 
I have is, the possession stat. Do you do you want it? I, I just I just oh, saw God. it on my end, and this is higher than what I thought it would be for <laughs> Spain's possession. Seventy-seven percent possession. But here's the beautiful stat: they had over a thousand passes, and Morocco had three hundred. That is a, a fitting curtain call for Sergio Busquets' last World Cup match. I think, like narrative-wise, seventy-seven percent just to. Draw the contrast to Morocco's 23%, 23% of possession over 120 minutes of football. And they did not, if you were watching it though, it's about where is the possession in any given moment. And they weren't put in danger that many times. Yassim Bono, until penalties, was not put in danger that many times. And again, you're talking... We always say tactical masterclasses about things. Now I've seen there's a tactical masterclass by Will Still from uh, from Rhymes uh, on YouTube. Like it's all the obsession. But what about this? What about this being a tactical masterclass by Walid? Yeah, twenty three percent possession. Your mind, you might think, oh, so many yellow cards. They got <laughs> one yellow card that match, and it was quite literally filling in the gaps. And Spain could not do anything to break them down. Um. And so that goes to penalties. They win, obviously, in penalties. But Hakimi, that was the most mm-hmm. mm. storyline moment that you could that one could have. Winning penalty, you know, against against the Spain team, like you said, parents. He grew up in Madrid. Um, I don't know. I think he was part of the Madrid youth system, right? Yeah, yeah, he was. And uh, actually, he. He was he still belonged to Madrid when he was at Dortmund and Madrid sold him to Inter at the time. Yeah. That's right. But you know, what he must have been feeling, right? Unreal. Growing up in Spain, still feeling the you know, the the pull of, of Morocco. And And he could have up, been Spain's right back had exactly. he wanted to. He's that yeah. good. Yeah. To step up and score that penalty. And at the moment where all the cameras are on you, hit you with the best celebration, the little penguin waddle. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, oh, I know what you're talking about because I watched it back before coming to it. But the penalty itself, a disrespectful tap right down the middle. With all the pressure, that's what you do. That was vibes. <laughs> oh, man, it was so good. I was a huge fan of that moment. I I watched from that moment on like, I was just always waiting for the Moroccan, yeah, Moroccan team to to play. That's where they they galvanized the world behind them, uh, not just Africa, but the Arab world, Europeans, an entire diaspora there. But also the the hero there. Spain doesn't score a single penalty. One hits the post, which Yasin Bono guesses, and the other two Yasin Bono saves. Yeah, but for some reason. Emmy Martinez wins Golden Glove. Yes, for some reason, Emmy Martinez wins Golden Glove. Not Yasin Bono, who was at Sevilla. And now do you know where he is plying his trade, Yasin Bono, at age 32? In Saudi somewhere. Yeah, at Al-Hilal. Which one is that? Who, who's um, the stars that play on that team? So the stars that play is on that team. Is Koulibaly there? Koulibaly is on that team. Koulibaly is in defense in front of him. Um, in their their midfield, holding midfield, they have Ruben Neves and Sergei Milinkovic-Savic. 
Then there is uh, a startlet from Brazil called Malcolm, and then up front, Roy, making the move from Fulham, Mitrovic. Ah, uh, so this is the team that is the sister club of Newcastle. Um, well, it's interesting because Newcastle, in a way, has six sister clubs because the <laughs> PIF bought up the biggest six clubs in Saudi Arabia. So, yes. Well, okay, okay. Yeah, this is the one where they want Ruben Neves to come in and fill for your boy. <laughs> yeah. The, the Gambler. The, ga- um, the Gambler. Uh, Going to be a movie with uh, Mark Wahlberg playing Sando Tonali. With um, a thick Italian accent. Okay, back to, back to the Moroccan team. <laughs> back to the Moroccan team. So, I think that moment, like... They went on penalties there. I was watching it with my wife on the couch. I had come back uh, from a run with a mate, and we had run by like a little, a little restaurant on a corner where they were showing the match. And I'm like, "Wow, it's still zero zero. Wow, it's still going on." And I come back home and I watch the penalties with my wife, and we're both like cheering for the Moroccans, like out of our minds. And you're you're telling me I was I watched the game and I was sitting there, supposed to be working and. I was jumping up and down for the Moroccan team. And every time they would cut to the fans, I felt like I was one of the, like, just cheering on with them. It was great. I, I think actually at the time, I have uh, I have some text from you where you, you texted me that you just sweated through a shirt per half uh, while watching Morocco. Uh, that it, it was, that's accurate. I have no idea why. I just felt this, this pull to them as a, as a team. Um, it's, I guess anytime uh, it's the the Arab world against the the Europeans, I just feel like there's no respect that's given to those those teams, those countries. So it just felt great. It's it's unbelievable. And then they show up to a quarterfinal, and at this stage, the narrative changes. We have to admit the yeah. narrative changes against Portugal because it's not about Morocco. It's about the fact that Cristiano Ronaldo is not starting the match he's benched and imagine walid is in that on that team bus on the way to the stadium before and i just what the way i envision it is he's sending his iphone around to the team and having them scroll twitter and there's no mention of them of the moroccan team it's all about cristiano ronaldo who's gonna be benched who's then gonna move to saudi arabia who did the pierce morgan interview and he says he doesn't need to say anything. He just passes that around and it gets them. It gets them going and they show up, Roy. And what do they do? It was written in the stars. They lose five to one. <laughs> Imagine. That would, that would not be a good story. Not, not a good way to end this pod. <laughs> On four own goals. Um, they show up and then three minutes before the stroke of halftime, on a again brilliantly executed counter attack, our oh man Air Jordan Nasri with phenomenal, the phenomenal, phenomenal, and this is for as much as that gets the the praise. This is the game where I said they have a midfielder on their team who is an absolute warrior, covering every blade of grass out there, and doesn't give that Portuguese team any space. You know who I'm talking about? Sofian Amrabat. Who the actual the time, yeah. killer in the midfield. At the time playing for Fiorentina? For Fiorentina. My father was so proud at the time because he's he, got... I don't, 
Was yeah. he a starter for Fiorentina? He wasn't like a star for their team. It wasn't. You wouldn't tune into a Fiorentina match if if Amabad wasn't there. It's not like you'd say, "Oh, they're missing." You know, Leao would be out for Milan. Let's say. So this guy, he had a great game against Spain, but this against Portugal, you start to take note against Bruno Fernandes, mm-hmm. Neves, all these big European stars, and he was just dominating them. And the way that they were playing this this match, they were going on, they were filling the gaps on the counter, but they were playing like a one-man midfield in terms of Emrabat just being able to slide everywhere, intercept the ball. And, you know, for a second, I thought it was just me like fixating on this guy being like, wow, he is, he is the real deal. You know, you know me, I love a a hard tackling midfielder mm-hmm. and a, you know, the, the tough guy aspect. So I looked this guy up on, on Instagram, I think 25, 30 minutes after the match, he already has his own highlights from the match but not only that he has it dubbed to eye of the tiger and it starts out with this graphic of him yelling and turning into like it fades out into an actual like tiger or lion's roar and i start to look at all his videos and they're all these highlights of him just tackling and timing all of his tackles perfectly and i was i had like the biggest man crush on this guy afterwards just phenomenal so then i I started to think is he doing is he timing his tackles purely for the highlights after because they were just there were some slides that yeah they were so perfect they almost felt like he would slow up just so he could slide and get the ball and and i think so ala paolo maldini in a way it's not that he was in a way intentionally late to the challenge exactly you can only do that if you're good because or else you're gonna foul and he never fouled not only that, but I think they had the the distance covered of every player in the tournament. Mm-hmm. And he was like the total, he was still like five, six kilometers more than any player who had, you know, played as much as he had. So he was just out there playing phenomenal. Not to take away from El Nesri's amazing header. If you guys, listeners, have not seen that goal, just watch the cross. And it looks like a Ronaldo-esque header in terms of height the skill to get it on target phenomenal and i think that's where the party really started that's when the the media started to sit, like tell about the story like the coach brought in all the families into the hotel so right instead of you know having that distance they're in you know qatar a lot of other teams were complaining they didn't like the the hotels the areas all that stuff they bring the, their everyone's family, whoever they want, extended family. So that whole hotel is a Moroccan party every day. So the players just feel like they're having the time of their life, you know, playing for their country. It's not the stress that some other clubs were feeling, which you could see with a team like Portugal. Jeez. Those last minutes, you're really, they're really stressed out, right? Yeah. Um, and it's a disappointment, quote unquote, for them. So this is where it all starts and there's no more, underdog story you're going up against the french team the the reigning champs yeah and this is where i again we we pivot to this game and this is where the tactics i think this is where waleed learned a very a very hard lesson about (laughs) possession 
So a France team, in a way, for the ages, very solid at the back with Varane, with Teo Hernandez. In the middle, Chouameni having a breakout tournament. And then you got, you know, I mean, up front, it's it's unbelievable in terms of the mix and the balance. You got Dembele, Griezmann, and Mbappé to Olivier Giroud's shoulders. And there's there's the feeling in general, I think, at this stage of, okay, Spain was one thing, Portugal was another thing, but this is France, Morocco. Bow out with pride. Yeah, yeah, and I think we didn't touch on the 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 Moroccan team. So their 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 star center back had his whole leg, Roman Saiz, wrapped up. He probably shouldn't have been playing. Amrabat as well had an injury. Mm-hmm. He should have been playing. He still did. Um, Saiz actually came off with said injury. But the way that you know they combat that team, they went five four one. So you're thinking, you look at this team, it's like, oh, they have their two best fullbacks, Hakimi and Mazzuri, are going to really just they're fast. They they know what the French team has. They can counteract that. They can park the bus, you know, do similar what they did against uh Spain in terms of possession. And so that's probably what they had trained for. And I don't know how much between the games you actually have training, relaxing, more mm. tactics. You go out there. Um the stress is on them a little bit there. I think for the Moroccan team. So they go to the, for the first time in the tournament, a five, four, one, I think yeah. due to the injuries and the fact that they, they could not be left exposed against, let's be honest, Mbappe. Um, yeah. And so they come out with this tactic and I mean, maybe you've seen it, but do you know what the possession was for this game? I mean, I know you watched the actual game, but how much possession do you think a French team that has some of the best midfielders against a 5-4-1? Yeah, I mean, we've just talked about two matches where basically the team that loses has three-fourths of it. My feeling in this one was that it reverted a lot more to the mean, and I'm not going to say 50-50, but, you know, 55-45. So Morocco had 62% possession. Morocco did. Morocco did. What does that tell us? They had more passes... They had just as many shots, the same amount of shots on target. And I, watching that game, they did not think that was going to be the French game plan to sit back and hit them on the counter. Make them play with the ball was the idea. Make them play with the ball. They They don't know how to do it. No other team had done that. I think it's something really simple, but I didn't think looking at that lineup and everything that, oh, this is going to be a park the bus situation. They played, they tried playing uh, some progressive football, the Moroccans, but they clearly did not know what to do with said possession. Um, they had that extra defender on the field, mm-hmm. but also doesn't help. They got scored on in the fifth minute, which, you know, changes yeah. the game plan quite drastically, which let, allows the French team to sit back a little bit and absorb the pressure. They had, you know, a great defense. One thing that goes missing in this, the fact that I think Morocco hit the post twice in the first half inside of the post and they hit the outside on a set that could have changed the game 1-1. Um, you know, obviously they tried making a few changes, Morocco, but at that point I think they were just so tired and the just the the like sheer 
task in front of them to come back from 1-0 against a French team that if they leave one inch of space, it's going to be exploited. Was there, I don't want to say their downfall, but that's just sometimes how it goes. The, the French team had great tactics, the setup, but also player for player, the better team. And it's like what you said. I mean, you were just talking about how Sofian Amrabat literally played his heart out in the match before. And we've seen it so many times where a quote-unquote underdog just ends up getting tired at a certain point. And and that's what we saw in this match. It's what we saw, you know, four years before with Croatia rolling up to that final of the World Cup, having played, you know, an extra three matches because of always going extra time. Yeah. Um, that's what happens. And no props, you know, to on this level, Deschamps showing up and saying, guys, this is how we beat them, not how we've played all the other matches in the tournament. Yeah, and that was that was it for. I mean, obviously the they have the third, fourth playoff, whatever. That's yeah. the biggest waste of the game ever. I don't think anyone exactly. tunes in for that. They put in exactly. the they put in the heroes, as you say. Um, yeah, exactly. So they, they lose there, but I think that kind of starts a a discussion about where you can find talented players mm-hmm. um, across just across the globe, quite honestly. And I don't know if any players really got a big move after that. Um, their midfielder, Onwai, I think, um, he was, I think that he was playing for a French team and he, he got like an 8 million pound move. But aside from that, there was no one really. Um, Hakimi was already at PSG. Mazzuri well, was at yeah. Bayern Munich. There was one big move, right? And I mean, and I'm not talking Ziyech, going to Galatasaray, but Sofian Amrabat getting picked up by Man United this but summer this uh, to summer, the graveyard. Yeah, this summer, though, and you would have thought there was more... You yeah, know, for oh, January. For for January, but also I I was surprised there wasn't more offers for him. Mm-hmm. I Looking at you know, stick, sticking in the EPL, he would have been a great player for Liverpool, the way that they, they play. Yeah, and, the intensity. They went for some endo... Endo yeah. guy, um, yeah. but he's several years older than Amrabat. But now if you look at Amrabat, he looks like kind of like a shell of a man compared to what he was at that World Cup. Exactly. Um, and it's it's what we discussed earlier in the podcast of he's gone to a fantastic graveyard for uh, for promising players. Um, yeah, and in his prime. Yeah, in his prime. And worst case, he's another Donny van de Beek in a sense. I yeah. know different positions, but could be the same storyline. So... Like you said, could have fit in great at Liverpool, could have fit in great at, at Brighton. Um, a lot of these other guys taking, you know, some of the money moves. Hakim Ziyech, he's 30. I mean, I know Milan had shown a lot of interest uh, the past few summers. He ends up at Galatasaray. And, I mean, no disrespect, Galatasaray is, at the end of the day, one of the biggest clubs with the biggest followings in Europe. But, you know, like, he could have still played on a high level going deep in Champions League somewhere, I think. Well, wasn't it his last transfer got canceled because he failed a medical? or they To PSG. To Something PSG. happened. He was basically on the plane there, right? Sorry, he was on the plane there. There was two separate occasions, right? So the one yeah. was to PSG, and Chelsea did not send the paperwork facts in time. Yeah. And then, again, the next window, he failed a medical with... 
our favorite guy, Fabrizio Romano, you know, uh, finding this leaked information. But here's the best part, and he'll never admit it, Fabrizio, the uh, – I can't stand this guy. Easy now. I can't stand this guy. But it was a fake information. Yeah. He didn't act – he went back and, you know, ZH calls him out on Twitter. It's like, what failed medical, bro? And he doesn't say anything. Right. So he still keeps his 100% accuracy as a respected journalist there. But that's just uh, to wrap up the the transfers in and outs there. But I think one thing we didn't touch about, and I'm not the biggest expert on it, but how they got to that point, the Moroccan team, I think it does start with the coach, where he came from, the mentality that he instilled in the players. Um and as well, the grassroots program in Moroccan football to to find out where the best Moroccan players are, where they're at in the world. Yeah. Um, and I can't remember. I, I did remember reading an article on it, but I can't remember who it was. But somebody in, you know, the government, they had given the grassroots program in Morocco 50 million. And this was 10 or I think in 2009. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of this? Yeah. But it's like, how long does it take for a country to level up their sports program and standardize it across both men and women? Mm -hmm. And that just shows you that it took about a decade to get to where they want it to be. So 50 million spread over the course. And I'm sure there's other installments there. Yeah. But And, And while you're doing that to get from A to B, in the meantime, France is going from D to F with their sporting infrastructure, with their industrial policy. So it... It is really, you know, it's a tough game in that sense. Uh, all the more remarkable that they're able to make that run. Um, before we round that off, so the milestones of that tournament and what they meant uh, for for Morocco. First one, first African team to reach seven points at the group stage. Next one, first Arab nation to advance to the quarterfinals by defeating Spain 3-0 in a penalty shootout. Then Morocco becomes first African and first Arab nation to reach semifinals following a 1-0 victory over Portugal. And it, it goes on and on. Walid Regraoui of Morocco, first African and Arab manager to reach the quarterfinals and the semifinals. First African team to play seven matches in one edition. And first African team to achieve fourth place in a tournament. I mean, that's awesome. You'd sign up for that. Those are now, you know, that team is heroes to their country. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And to us. And we're not even from us. There. Yeah. Like, I, um, I visited. I'm not as big. I, they still got to turn me around on the vibes of Morocco, the country, when you yeah. visit. But. Big topic on our on our sister podcast, Lost in Postulation, which All you right. have really gone on the record yeah. about. Yeah. yeah, tune in. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, what a run. I'm glad we covered them. I'm glad we were able to somehow connect it to the current malaise and situation at Manchester United. Um, what about Walid to succeed Eric Ten Hag as a, don't as do, a manager? Don't, don't do it to him. Exactly. Don't do it to him. Don't do it to him. <laughs> um I've been looking at like their last matches. It, they're kind of coming off the cliff. Uh, I don't know if they don't get as much engagement because they're not in a tournament in Morocco, but I guess the question is, you know, do, do you think 
this is something they can build on or are we talking flash in the pan everything worked uh, it's it's hard to say you look at their team their creative outlet next world cup might mm-hmm. not be there um but we'll see yeah well and that's uh that's another morocco fan uh in the background making himself uh, yeah. himself he, heard. He, he heard that i said flash in the pan possibility so exactly he's exactly well and and that could could be him in a few years could be him in a few years and uh <laughs> roy on on that note any parting shots for the listeners go watch all the highlights of the moroccan team's world cup run and bring some tissues and play eye of the tiger I like that actually. That that is kind of something I would do, uh, to be honest. Uh, just of my highlights of jogging around the neighborhood. Yes, perfect. Good, listeners. Take care. He's Roy Cycli. I'm Nicola Volpi, and we'll hear from you next time. So long. Peace.